Well, welcome back to Faith in Quarantine, where we're going to try to cover 2,000 years of church history in two chapters of this podcast. And I've only covered 500 years, so I've got some catching up to do. But I want to recap what we've learned so far. When you talk about the history of the church, you really need to remember that there are two threads that run through that history. The first thread is the idea of apostolic succession. Now, for us Episcopalians, that means that we believe, uh, for good reason, that our bishops, uh, our leaders, uh, are people who've been touched by someone who's been touched by someone who's been touched by someone who's been touched all the way back to Christ in an unbroken line of touch, which makes the body of Christ, the church, this family of touch uh, in remembrance of what we're told in Scripture for God so loved the world that it became one of his own creation, that that we've all been touched by God in this, this tangible way. It's a cool idea. The other thread that runs through the church's story, which we'll see again, we'll see both of these actually, uh, is the problem of Constantine. And the problem of Constantine simply means that when when the religion or the church became the religion of the Roman Empire, the established church of the Roman Empire, something was lost. Uh, when, when the church ceased to be different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different and becomes a representative of the government or a place for advancement or something with money, uh, then, then there were theological problems with this. People stopped looking at the sky and they started looking at beautiful cathedrals or uh, bishops now became princes of the church or, or they had armies and, and money. And it, it just, it's, a, it's a, really a time of misery that continues to this day and it'll rear its head this morning in this chapter of, of church history. So just remember these two threads, apostolic succession and the problem of Constantine as we move forward. Now, in the last chapter, we only covered 500 years, and now I want to skip forward to the year 1500. So if we, if we covered 0 to 500 in chapter 1, we're going to begin chapter 2 at 1500, which was a time of great change, much like our time today, and I'll say something more about that in a bit. Uh, but 1500 was a time of great technological change, advancement, uh, travel, uh, discovery of the new world, globalization, and the printing press. Uh, it was the end of the medieval era and the beginning of, of, of a new renaissance of learning. Uh, it, was, it was a time when people began to, to see themselves as individuals before God, which is very important. They also began to see themselves as, as people belonging to a nationality and not to a local um, a noble or local lord. Uh, they began to see themselves as English or German or French. Uh, it was a time where the printing press suddenly made books and information accessible to everyone. And so in the middle of all this, in 1517, Martin Luther started with his published 95 Theses uh, as a protest against uh, the church in Rome or the, the, the Roman Catholic Church. It started a movement that just took off like wildfire that would become Protestantism. And that's a very, very important marker in church history. But what I want to say to you right now is that while this Protestant movement began, uh, grew up like a mushroom uh, on the continent, it, it didn't happen in England that way. Not so in England. So in 1509, uh, Henry VIII was, was, had his coronation. He was made king of England. And it was supposed to be a golden time for the English uh, people. Uh, Henry VIII was uh, a, truly a Renaissance prince. He was studied. Uh, he studied the law, but he also studied uh, religion. He wanted to be a priest. He had an older brother who was supposed to be the king, died. His name was Arthur. 
and and so Henry Henry was uh, he could he could ride and he could hunt, but he could also pray. Uh, he was handsome and he was virile, and this this would be the time that England would begin its its golden age uh, it, with Henry the Eighth. However, by 1525, Henry had a problem. His wife, who was a Spanish noble person herself. Um, Catherine could not have a male heir. She could not produce a male child, and they had not. England had not had the success with with uh, with women uh, with queens uh, that some other monarchs had, some other countries had had, and so they were fearful without a male heir that how they would be continue the Tudor succession. I mean, that was just just a problem, and so Henry had bishops in his church. Henry was a very conservative, Catholic-minded monarch. Uh, to the point that he said if a Lutheran ever set foot on the English soil, he would, he would put him to the torch, which which earned him the title Defender of the Faith, which actually English monarchs care to this day. And so what happens is that bishops of the church in England um, were studying Protestant ideas, and they loved Protestant ideas, and they wanted to move uh, the church in England to the church of England in a Protestant direction, and so they took advantage of the king's problem uh, and and got him an annulment. Now I want you to understand that that annulments for marriages were an easy thing to do for kings. Uh, all they had to do was send the pope some money, and the pope would do anything uh, for for them. Except Henry's had the great misfortune to have been married to a, a, a Spanish queen or a Spanish monarch, and so unfortunately Spain was the most popular or most popular, the most wealthy uh, country in Europe, and the most popular was the church because of, of that wealth. And also, it was, it was Henry's misfortune that the king, uh, that the pope actually was under house arrest uh, by the king of Spain, so he wasn't going to let anything happen to his aunt, uh, and so Henry couldn't get the annulment. And the bishops in England said, look, we'll, we'll make this happen for you. We're going to create a church. Now, that's the birth of our church, and it's not pretty. And what you have here is you have both the apostolic succession and the problem of Constantine all wrapped up in it. So what you got here is uh, is a church that's born of a of a of a monarch's problem. That's the problem of Constantine. So it would, the Church of England wasn't born out of any any great great uh, uh, prayerful uh, start. Rather, it was it was really born out of a divorce, so that Henry could could have another wife. Of course, that would be that would happen six times before it was all over, and and that's again the problem of Constantine. But what I want you to see here is that when the Church of England, when the Church of England was born, it kept a lot of the old stuff, including apostolic succession. I like to say that our our church, the Episcopal Church, is a Protestant church with a very different starting point. Uh, our Lutheran friends, our Baptist friends, uh, our Presbyterian friends, those were all churches born of a protest against the church in the continent of Europe. Uh, our church was was born uh, as a protest uh, uh, by the church, which is very different. Got it now? Most Protestants were a protest against the church. Ours was a protest or a reform by the church, which means that we kept a lot of the old stuff. That This is why I have, have Orthodox friends and Roman Catholic friends who will attend a service at St. Luke's, and they're astounded at how similar we are. Uh, and so of the Protestant churches, we've kept a lot of the old things, uh, the threefold order of ministry, bishops, priests, deacons, apostolic succession, and, and of course, the same liturgy. So... We've got both threads who are wrapped up in the birth of who we are. But now I want to skip forward and, and leave 1500, which was an exciting time, and go to the American Revolution, which is the birth of our church. And then I'm going to bring this home to how the church history can inform us in this time of quarantine. Um, 
the Anglican Church in North America had a had an identity problem, had a big identity problem after the American Revolution. First of all, the name Church of England is is not going to be any good uh, in a in a new a post uh, revolutionary world uh, where the thirteen colonies now become the thirteen states, the thirteen United States. Uh, but they had a bigger problem than that. They didn't have any bishops. Now in the American colonies, they liked it that way. Um, this is another problem of Constantine thing. Uh, bishops in England to this day sit on the House of Lords. And so the the, the colonies, being a, a, a new experiment, an independent spirit, if you will, they wanted to get away from the old world European things, and they wanted to get away from old world European uh, bishops. And so the Anglican Church, or the Church of England in the, in the United States, uh, they would go to back to England to to generate their clergy. The way we the way we generate a church is that bishops create clergy for the church. And so I served a colonial parish in Virginia in seminary that uh, predated the uh, Revolutionary War. And the very first rector of that church actually died at sea coming back from an ordination. So they had to elect another rector and send him to London to be ordained a, a, a priest. However, they liked it that way back then, except after the revolution. They got no bishops. They got no way to keep the church going. Now, our cousins, the Methodists, uh, they fixed that problem by breaking the chain. The The origin of the Methodist church is from uh, John Wesley, who died an Anglican priest. And originally, it was just supposedly a method within the Anglican church of being a little more pious and a little little better, a little more, more of a, a scripture reading, prayerful uh, exercise. And so it was actually a good thing that became its own church. Uh, what happened is that American Methodists just decided to elect bishops uh, outside of the apostolic succession, and that's the birth of that church. Uh, our church, uh, the way we kept it going, we almost, didn't, we almost didn't make it, almost didn't make it. But the Diocese of Connecticut elected a man named Samuel Seabury, for their uh, bishop, and they he traveled to England, and the um, the English bishop said, "Look, we really feel for you, your fellow Christian, and and I know you've been elected bishop by your diocese, but we can't help you because we're loyal to the crown uh, constitutionally. We can't make you a bishop, which goes back to the problem of Constantine, right? Our church is way too wrapped up in politics in that way, and but fortunately, uh, Samuel Seabury found." a group of Scots bishops, they were called non-juring bishops, who were actually loyal to a prior dynasty, uh, the Stuart dynasty that was not in power uh, to this day, and so they, he found a loophole. And so the Scots uh, saved our church, and for that reason, the corner of the Episcopal church flag has got a little St. Andrew's cross as a thank you uh, to Scotland uh, for, for making us a bishop so that we could create clergy and keep the church going. Shortly after that happened, the Constitution in uh, in England was amended to the point uh, that they could assist us in creating more bishops, and soon we had a church with bishops. But I find it interesting that the concept of apostolic succession was so important to our ancestors that they that they kept it and they did not break the chain. Um, that's sort of the origins. Well, that is the origins, if you will, of of the American Episcopal Church. But now I want to answer a question because this has everything to do with uh, the problem of Constantine in our own day. I want, to, I want to ask a question and then answer it, and that is, why are there so few Episcopalians in the South? Um, why are there so few Episcopalians in Alabama, and specifically when there's so many Baptists and so many Methodists? Uh, I think the, if I remember right, 
the Diocese of Alabama, which is the upper two-thirds of our state, has 90 Episcopal parishes. The North Alabama Conference of the Methodist Church, which is smaller than the Diocese of Alabama geographically, has 900 churches. And, and of course, we know that there are a million Baptist churches all around. And so what happened with us? Well, it's the problem of Constantine. I have an exercise that I like to do with confirmation classes that I'll, I'll show you how this, how this question gets answered and how this works. I want you to imagine yourself living in Alabama in 1855, and uh, there were only a handful of Episcopal churches. I'm going to, if my memory serves, there were probably four or five of these, they're not very many, and they're located near uh, places of wealth. Uh, another sort of bad, not bad thing, a challenge of the Episcopal churches has always been associated with power and with money, uh, the, most of the presidents in early in our early uh, American history were Anglican Christians or Episcopalians. It's just it's just part of part of part of coming from England in that way. And again, I would call that the problem of Constantine. And so in the South, uh, the Episcopal Church belonged to the planters and their wealth, so it was tied to cotton. So it, so the Episcopal churches were either in port cities like Mobile or river cities like Montgomery, where uh, where cotton would be shipped. Or they were in uh, places near the plantations, the plantation owners. And so I'll just use my imagination and say that you're a, a, a planter, the third son of a planter in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, on living on a large farm. And because you're the third son, there's no way that you're going to have um, any, any inheritance coming to you. So, you. so basically your family gives you to the church which is a little bit like the problem of Constantine. And that's, that's happened ever since the medieval times. Heck, Henry VIII was going to be a priest uh, before his brother died, and, and he um, um, you know, ended up being the king. But he, he would have been a, a priest and then a bishop, just what they did, just gave you to the church. So at the time, you would attend the University of Alabama, which before it was burned uh, during the uh, Civil War, uh, resembled the uh, University of Virginia, and it was a, a you know brand new uh, major university uh, for uh, for for the Deep South. And you attend the University of Alabama, and then you would attend seminary either in Virginia or New York City, which they had two at the time. And to get to Virginia, we'll just pick that one. Uh, to get to Virginia from Tuscaloosa, you had to ride a flatboat for a while. You had a stagecoach for a while. They had terrible infrastructure back then. Maybe you had to take the take a riverboat down to uh, down to Mobile and then sail around, you know, the coast uh, to to get to Virginia. It just took forever to get there. And so by the time you got up there, you studied for three years. You studied Hebrew and Greek and theology. And when you're about to graduate. Um, Someone, a calling committee from Philadelphia comes up to you and they, and they say, they say, do you really want to go back to malaria infested Alabama? It's hard to get down there. Hard, you know, there, there's so many hard ways to get to it. There are not a lot of Episcopalians. You could come to Philadelphia where we have brick streets and sewage and gas lamps. And, and that's what they did. And so very few clergy sort of took, took up the call, if you will, to return to Alabama. There weren't that many. Uh, well, wealthy families anyway. The wealth was concentrated in just a few, and so there just weren't that many churches, that many things to do, and instead they just continued to go to the northeast where the, where the people were. Now, that took a long time to say. But let me tell you what's happening in Alabama while that rich kid is going to, uh, going to college and then going to grad school in a state where most people couldn't read. Uh, Methodist circuit riders, Baptist circuit riders, armed with only a Bible and a saddlebag and a horse and a field and a barn, 
uh, preached. They, pre they rode and they preached and they didn't need an education. They had the fire of the gospel in their hearts. And this is why they're more Baptists and Methodists in Alabama than Episcopalians. And I would say that there, we are numerically small because of the problem of Constantine. Well, that was then, and now we're here, here today. I believe that, uh, that St. Luke's and the Episcopal Church uh, is uniquely positioned to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Uh, I said this before the quarantine, but I, I, even now, I think with the quarantine, I think we have uh, an intelligent theology. It's coherent. It's kind. Uh, it, it, it adapts very well to science. Uh, I think we have a, a, co a coherent idea of, t of love for neighbor. Uh, we're not so individualistic, if you will, uh, that we would uh, defy the orders of a quarantine, if you will, as, I, as I've heard some churches do. Uh, we, we participate very well in government. Uh, we, we're very comfortable in the public sphere. Uh, so when you combine all those things, Episcopal Church does very, very well in a national crisis. Uh, many, we have many leaders, many doctors, uh, many, many smart people uh, feel very, very comfortable in our church. And so for this reason, even though we're numerically small, we can also affect, if you will, public policy. So this is just, just one way uh, that, that St. Luke's can take its place uh, as an Episcopal church. But there's also another thing I want us to think about with regards to the quarantine and church history. Uh, it has been noticed that things happen every 500 years. Now, over, this, over these two chapters, just 30 minutes or so of podcast, I've tried to cover 2,000 years of church history. But let's think about the markers that we've covered uh, together. Uh, if, we, if we call year one or, or zero, uh, the, the first Easter day moving forward, the, the beginning of what we would call the Christian church, by the year 500, it is the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, it's the problem of Constantine, but that's also a pretty remarkable accomplishment that, that in 500 years, Christianity goes from nothing uh, to being the, being the religion of the emperor. And so, so that's, that's 500. Now, if we go from 500 to 1,000, that's the split of Christendom between East and West. And we didn't cover that because it didn't really have a bearing on, on the trajectory of St. Luke's. But in, you know, in around the year 1,000, you've got the Orthodox churches of the East and you've got the Latin churches of the West. And so that's the big split. 1500, we just covered in the podcast, which is that amazing time with all the change and, and the beginning of, of the Protestant uh, revolution, if you will. Uh, so that's 1500, which brings us to today. And the quarantine and technology. We're all connected in ways now that we, we've, we're connected now more in ways in a month uh, than, we, than we ever imagined before. We are in a time that is, ex is it exciting and is it challenging. It's 1500 and it's right here and it's, and it's today. And so it has us wonder, how can we take our place? What role will we have? Uh, I, I will tell you that the world has already changed. We just don't know what it is yet. But I'll invite you to think and dream with me. Thanks, friends.